The 100% Wild Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, the nation's number one GPS hunting app. Download today in the Google Play and App Store. Hello to everyone Hold up at home. This is Tim Chelswick. This is the Drury Outdoors 100% Wild Podcast. I'm Matt Drury. And we've got... I'm Mark. And this is probably a good time to put out a bunch of great content because there's probably a lot of people at home that need something to do right now. And besides the fact that we have tons of options on DeerCast and YouTube to just kind of pass the time, trying to bring it up a a couple notches and have something that's a little more informative than normal. We have a learned gentlemen on, on, on the show and it's none of us because no, no, no one expects that's not that. us that's correct Someone with some actual education <laughs> yeah yeah so uh so a little bit of backstory mark texted me uh maybe a week or two ago in the morning he said hey you got to read this article it's it was from qdma it was on coyote predation of deer and the author was dr mike chamberlain and it was it, it was fascinating and so we thought, why not? I, I thought it was phenomenal. So I'm yeah. so excited about this podcast, yeah. really. And now we get to ask him questions. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that I think any, you know, land manager, deer, you know, steward of your, of your piece, you're always worried about predation, coyotes. What, what can you do to make it better? Mm-hmm. And it was pretty eye opening looking at this research and reading through the article. It really challenged, and I won't give away the, the punchline here, but it, for me, it really challenged some of the preconceived notions I had about what it means to take coyotes out of the environment. It made me think the little we're doing isn't nearly enough. (laughs) Really. You know, I always think when I think coyotes, I think Tad Brown, you know, and Tad was telling me how many he had caught on his 80 acres this year. And I was like, wow, that seems impossible, you know? And then I read this and the pieces started coming together. And this was 25 years ago. Tad was talking about, you just, you can never get rid of them because of all these different things that they do. So uh, he was ahead of his time, but I'm, I'm glad that we get to drill down with Mike here today a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. So we should probably bring him, we should probably bring him on Dr. Mike Chamberlain from the University of Georgia. He's a professor of wildlife, ecology, and management. Mike, welcome aboard. Oh, glad to be here. Glad to be here. So, so maybe explain your background and how long you've been in the field and what your areas of expertise are. Yeah. So my background I grew up in Virginia, suburban kid, um, dad hunted and fished, went to Virginia Tech, went to Mississippi State, got multiple degrees, and then was really lucky to land an academic position at, at the time at LSU, at Louisiana State University. And I did all sorts of predator research when I was a PhD student. I was actually studying how predators interacted with turkeys at the time, and I some of that I still do. But... Um, that kind of got me down the, the predator road, if you will. And then from there, I've pretty consistently studied um, some some predators, mostly mammals, whether it be black bears, coyotes, bobcats, foxes, raccoons. I've done quite a bit of work on, on all those species. It's a little off topic, a little <clears throat> on topic, but I've heard that that the the kind of silent under the radar real predator of turkeys are raccoons because they raid nests so much how much validity is in that statement quite a bit yeah raccoons are a, a, an important nest predator we don't see a lot of predation on adults from raccoons but they are they're certainly a nest eater um, they kind of stack up with with snakes as our our number one nest eaters right now at least in the southeastern united states gotcha you love snakes so that's yeah, yeah. disheartening let's hear. move on to a different topic <laughs> <laughs> so so let's get into the coyote piece because i i think generally as as land managers as whitetail hunters we think that um kill a coyote that's one less you're protecting a fawn you're protecting uh you're protecting your herd um what does your research show about that that kind of philosophy yeah so coyotes are are pretty complicated when it comes to how their their populations are structured and what we see is uh more than a third of the coyotes you get your hands on are transients and what that means is they're just nomads they're just moving around the landscape waiting for a territory to open and therefore if you think about it 
you know, three to four out of every 10 coyotes that you put your hands on were probably not on your property the day before they were just moving around. So the thought that you, you know, for every coyote removed, it's some, it's going to translate to some change to your deer herd or your turkey flock or your, your quail or whatever it is you're interested in is a bit off base given what we've learned about how coyotes structure themselves on the landscape. It's is there a certain age that you've seen these coyotes and is it male versus female that are the transients or is there any correlation between age and or sex? Yeah, Mark, there is. Most of these transients are younger coyotes, not all, but most are younger animals in their first year, year and a half of life. Mom and dad kick them out. They disperse from their their natal range and they start wandering looking for a home range to settle in. And if they find it, fine. And if they don't, they typically die uh, during transiency. So that's basically the two outcomes. Young animal starts moving, he or she either settles down or they die. We don't see any uh, difference in sex. It, it seems that transiency is part of every coyote's life. Some of them move short distances and find the territory and others move hundreds of miles before they either settle down somewhere or they die while trying to do so. As far as age, like I said, most are young, but we do see transiency in adults. Um, situations such as you have a mated pair, the male gets trapped or shot or whatever, and the female goes into a state of transiency and starts moving, or you see a male or female that gets displaced by another adult, basically kicked out of their territory, they start moving and becoming transients. So it's not just younger coyotes, but it tends to be mostly animals that are leaving their natal range. So follow-up question to that. You said they either you know, find a place or they die. What's the cause of death more often than It's almost always us. Okay. <laughs> um, trappers, hunters, okay. vehicle yeah, collisions. Those those tend to be the big three. All right. So so in the article that was, you know, that the QDMA put out, you guys had a a project that was a tri it's called the Tri-State Project. And mm -hmm. uh, you trapped 190 coyotes. What period of time was this research done in? Yeah, so we you mean time of year or, or years? Uh, how many years it took? It, it the, We had two trapping seasons, and we, we basically went in and trapped coyotes in three different states during kind of fall slash winter, put the collars on, and then we basically just let these coyotes distribute themselves on the landscape and we tracked them until either their collars died or the animal died. Um, we're still getting some of these collars back. We, in fact, we we had one that was deployed in 2016, uh, a male in South Carolina that was just recently captured by a trapper. Of course, the collar was dead, but that guy had lived you know, quite a while. He was an adult when we collared him in 2016, so he had been around the block quite a few times. How far did he travel, out of curiosity? He was actually killed in his in his home range. He he was a he was a resident breeding pair member and had been there since we captured him. He he was just good at avoiding you know hunters and trappers. So you have classified it as two ways: a, a resident and a transient. And the home ranges of those of those two, the average home, home range was. I mean, it was. I found that pretty interesting. A resident was a seven uh, square mile kind of range, and transient mm -hmm. was. 25 um, square mile range. So of all the research that you guys did in this project, what was the thing that stood out the most to you? I think the, the big shock to, to me was that some of these animals will move back and forth from resident status to transient status two or three times in their lifetime. That, that was a bit surprising to me. I, I guess I always thought you know, they would go on a walkabout and then they would settle down somewhere and make a go of it. But we had a number of animals 
that started out, I say started out, when we captured them, they, let's just say they were a transient. And the first few months of data, we were just running all over the place. And then four months into the tracking, we see them settle down for four or five months. Clearly, they had become a resident. They were paired with another coyote of the opposite sex. And then all of a sudden, they would start wandering again, and they would move another 100 miles and then settle down again. And, and the fact that they just kept going back and forth from a resident to a transient was a bit surprising to me. Agreed. That's, yeah. that's amazing. It is. I mean, it answers a lot of questions about to just Tad, you know, catching 12 coyotes on 80 acres. I was like, how is that even possible? Well, he just, he just you answered. You fill it. a void and they, yep. they, or you create a void and they fill yeah, it basically. Putting a welcome mat out for <laughs> a replacement. It also tells you Tad's pretty lethal with his track sets, you know. <laughs> no doubt. He's no getting doubt. lots of experience levels, lots of age levves to, to get 12 in one season. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. Mike, what is, uh, what is a, a a life, an average lifespan of a coyote? We really don't know in, in the East, Southeast. I mean, they, if you just, the, the problem is kind of back up. The problem is having technology that lasts long enough for you to track an animal through its entire lifetime. The GPS collars that we use do a really good job at collecting fine scale data but it comes at the cost of burning the collars up, if you will, that the battery, you know, gives out after a couple of years of tracking. So um, it's hard to say what the, the lifespan is. Most of our animals that we are recovering now still are recovering are at least four or five, six years old. But by and large, you know, most of these animals suffer a mortality within a few years okay, of them gotcha. being collared. Gotcha. So I, you know, I'd say something around the, you know, the, the three to four year range is probably pretty close for a, a coyote in the Southeast. If you're a resident, One of the- if you're a transient, you're, you're in trouble. I mean, they, their lifespan is short. Mm-hmm. Most of our transients die within a year. Interesting. And your research showed that 60% of the deaths were from shootings. Yes. So gun violence. Yeah. Gun violence. One of the things that I always notice just on my one piece that I hunt all the time is that come late season, uh, you know, you start to see the, you know, throughout the year when we run trail cameras, I'm always seeing a picture here and there of a coyote. But once you get towards the late season, later in the year, you start seeing them running in packs. And then, you know, we start hearing them at the end of the night, you know, more and more and more. And, uh, I, I, you know, looking at your research, it showed kind of spikes in November and then spikes in May. You know, the, the, the part that I really found interesting is when you saw um, deer-related deaths spike based on the scat. So can you kind of get into the details of that a little bit and the research behind that? Sure. Yeah. So what's presented in that, in that article is diet for only the residents. And and that's an important distinction because if you look at previous studies on coyotes that collected scat, they just picked up scat. They, They just picked it up off of roads and searched for it and, and describe what these animals ate. Well, what we did is we went into these territories where residents were maintaining space and we, we collected scat from within the territory because some other research we had done in North Carolina had showed us that there's a pretty good chance that the only scat you're going to recover in a territory is from the residents that are living in it. In other words, you don't get transients blowing through there all the time. They kind of they kind of move around the edges of these resident home ranges. They don't infiltrate the interior for good reason because they would, you know, they they'd be in a fight for sure. So we felt comfortable going into the territories and collecting scat and then linking that to here's what resident coyotes are eating. Um, what you see with coyotes is they have the ability to hunt on their own and in, in groups. And they don't really have a packing structure like a, like a wolf. 
but they do cooperatively forage. So you can have individual coyotes that today they're they're with a buddy hanging, you know, chasing deer, and then tomorrow night they're you know they're on their own after rodents or rabbits or fruit or or whatever the case may be. So what you tend to see with coyotes is a spike in consumption of deer during the fall, which we've always believed was crippling loss, hunter, you know, carcasses available to coyotes on the landscape. And, and to some degree that there is some truth to that. Um, but you also see some spikes at other times of the year, particularly when fawns are available. One of the interesting things to me when we looked at the data from the, the study we're discussing now is how much deer was consumed throughout the year. That was a, a bit interesting to me because it showed that adults are being taken all year, not just during the fall and not just fawns in the summer that, that coyotes were preying on deer pretty much year round. And, and Mike, do you think that that adult deer are are being killed by coyotes cooperatively or can a single coyote bring down an adult deer? Uh, Yes. And yes, they, they are hunting deer cooperatively, excuse me, but they can take deer on their own. Uh, In fact, I, I had a van full of students traveling to Mississippi state once, and I would have never believed it at the time. This was 2005. But a coyote chased a doe out in the median of Highway 84 that goes basically from through the Homachita National Forest and killed the doe in the median in front of us. Wow! And, <laughs> and this points. this doe hit the pavement. And she was she was screaming. I mean, she would she was hauling butt and she was big, you know, fully mature doe. And this male coyote is right on her heels chases her down, basically grabs her from the rear, trips her, grabs her around the throat, kills her in the median with us watching from the van. And and then we're in a Mexican standoff, if you will. We're we're trying to to see what happens and the coyote doesn't want to leave the deer. So finally once he realized she was completely dead, he kind of snuck off the, the shoulder of the road and hid. And multiple times while we sat there, came back out to try to figure out what he was going to do with that doe because he couldn't, he wasn't powerful enough to drag her on, on his own. So I suspect he just waited until dark and then, you know, started consuming the, the deer in the, in the median strip. But the point there is they can kill deer on their own. They don't have to have cooperation. Now, granted, the situation has to be ideal, you know, for a 35 pound dog to kill an adult deer, but they can do it. We actually documented it. This would have been back in the early nineties. Uh, Terry was with Don Kiske in Kansas in a river bottom and they filmed a pair, probably a mating pair, male and female chase this. I think it was a four corn buck for probably 30 minutes. And then they finally got it. The, the coyotes got it down and started consuming it right there on film. It was a little brushy, but you get what's going on. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. we actually documented it there there back in the early 90s. We've not seen it since, but we knew then that we were like, wow, that's pretty rare to have on film. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, Mike, what about just the the movement across the landscape? Because as far as I'm cons- as far as I as far as I know, coyotes were previously a more of a southwestern species and have and have spread and become a little more metropolitan are we seeing any differences in their behavior and their distribution as time goes on yeah so coyotes were historically a kind of a midwestern uh arid open early successional grassland type dog i mean they they evolved in systems where they could chase prey, they could use their nose. And, and then with the extirpation of the gray wolf and the red wolf from the East and Southeast, you basically had this open door where they could expand eastward. And in so doing, they've encountered, at least at the time, they encountered really rich deer populations and deer abundance was skyrocketing as coyotes were moving east and 
they have this abundant prey available to them and they are so adaptable as as you all know they can use pretty much any habitat that's available as long as there's prey to hunt so you, you basically have this animal that has a a blank palette, if you will, no other competitors on the landscape, and they start moving eastward. And remarkably, they've, they've basically gone from the Midwestern United States to the Atlantic seaboard. It's pretty, pretty crazy. It's amazing. You, you hear people talking about monster monster coyotes huge huge coyotes and calling them coy dogs as though they've it they've bred with domestic dogs is that is that actually a thing or is that more of a legend there there can be hybridization between coyotes and dogs it's not common i see the same thing that you see i have people sending me pictures of of this and that and asking what it is we don't see a lot of, of hybridization with, with dogs in southeastern coyotes in particular. We we collect blood samples and tissue samples from the animals that we handle, and then we, we actually cooperate with a lab at Princeton, and they they tell us kind of the ancestry of these animals. And by and large, there's very little dog genes in coyote populations in the south. Gotcha. So then what if, so if you have a piece of property, what can an individual do to cut back on predation of their deer? Man, that's a tough question. Um, which I, I guess is why you've got me on. Um, <laughs> yeah. So predation is pretty complicated when it, when it comes to these animals, you know, coyotes are, are capable of eating so many things that um, that deer is not just the staple. I mean, to some, by and large, deer are a staple of their diet. But but when you start trying to manage coyotes on small properties in particular, you are somewhat behind the eight ball because of the things we've talked about. the The notion that they're constantly backfilling you. If you let's just say you're talking about a hundred acres or fifty acres, yeah, those coyotes that are using that property are using twenty other properties yeah. in the, in the area as well. So you you really have a tough sell when you start trying to manage coyotes on small footprints like that. I would I would say though, if you're in a situation where you have small properties and you have neighbors that are like minded and are willing to, to put some effort forth towards removing coyotes prior to fawning season, if situations dictate such. So in other words, if you, if you think, or you have data suggesting that you have poor recruitment, so uh, very few fawns observed per doe in, in the early fall, then going in and, and removing coyotes prior to fawning across a number of properties in your local area can be impactful. You just have to recognize that the impact is short-lived. Mm. You, I mean, this Makes is an sense. annual type occurrence that, that would need to be practiced to have any measurable effect on the local herd. The, the, other, the other thing that your article kind of touched on was habitat, you know, as far as deer goes, you know, creating the type of habitat that is, a little more inducive to survival. Can you go into that a little bit for us? Yeah. So what we found was that coyotes that maintained ranges that had um, certain types of habitat consumed either more or less deer where, where you have open early successional habitat where coyotes can chase deer they are going to chase them and they're going to be successful. Where you have brushier, shrubbier, more dense early successional cover, you offer deer a fighting chance because all they have to do, as you, as you all know, is just jump right into the, into the brush and they're gone. And, and coyotes are not adapted to hunting in brushy, shrubby, areas they are adapted to hunting where they can see and where they can smell so if you if you look at the landscape from a coyote's perspective just get out on your hands and knees 
And at that height, if you can see above the cover, you're in coyote country. Mm. If you can't, then you're in a situation where the prey has an advantage because of their ecology. And, and, and in this case, we're talking about whitetails, but I mean, deer are adapted, as you know, to escaping into cover. So whitetails, they forage in selective bouts for brief periods of time, and then they go lay down and process what they've, what they've eaten. So if you have a situation where deer are foraging somewhere and can quickly escape into cover, that is an advantage for them and a disadvantage for a coyote without question. If, if that weren't the case, there would be no deer, you know, if yeah, you think yeah, about it based no on, on what, what we know. Uh, I have a question for you, and it's something that I've observed while hunting. I've been in fields with several deer in it, and a coyote or two will walk through. They'll look at them and literally pay them no mind. Mm-hmm. And yep. then in another situation, the moment they see a coyote, the entire field clears. What what do you think the difference is in those two like scenarios? What vibe, is what vibe are they out. catching, those deer? Yeah. Like it's as if they know when they're hunting and when they're just <laughs> yeah. passing through. I've seen the exact same thing. And I uh, this year doing a camera survey for a client, I, I got some of the most remarkable pictures of coyotes and deer in the same camera pictures seemingly ignoring each other does bedded down in the camera coyotes walking around within 20 or 30 feet of the, the bedded animals just startling but i think what happens is if, if deer know coyotes are present they see them they smell them they know hey there's a coyote over there by and large I don't think they pay much attention to them as long as they know where they are and they feel like they have an advantage when it comes to escape. So if you, if you think about it, if you knew something was potentially going to attack you, but it was in front of you and you could watch your attacker and know what its mannerisms were, understand how it was behaving, you would know just prior to an attack, that an attack was coming, and you you would feel comfortable enough to escape. I think what happens with situations where there are predation attempts is the animal is either surprised or had no idea that that coyote was there, and that's basically what you see with chasing. Uh, you know, coyotes they're not adapted to chasing for long periods of time. They don't want to get in a foot race. So what they need to do is attack and chase for a short distance and then capture the animal. So from a deer's perspective, they want to do everything they can to avoid being in that situation. So if they can see the, the potential attacker coming, my opinion is they probably look at it and go, eh, I'll just stand here and, and kind of pay attention to what you're doing. And as long as you don't exhibit a behavior that leads me to think you're going to attack me, then I'll just let you walk off. Good I've sense. seen the same thing with bobcats. I was going to say, because we also, we, we have footage where a doe will push a, a coyote off. Yep. You know, we've seen that a lot. Yes, we have. Which always amazes me. Yeah, it does me too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen the same thing. I've, in fact, I've seen that multiple times with bobcats in particular, where cats will enter a food plot or, you know, an area in a field and all of a sudden, you know, that matriarchal doe is standing out there and she wants no part of that. She, you know, she ends up getting kind of cranky and, and pushing the issue. And, and of course, cats are so ambivalent and <laughs> and arrogant in their behavior. They, you know, just kind of come and go. But uh, I have seen the same thing with once with a coyote where a doe actually approached the coyote and, and it was a younger coyote, obviously, and just, the coyote kind of, you know, meandered away, I'm, I'm guessing, realizing they didn't stand a chance. And it, it seems like from, interestingly, in many cases, coyotes recognize that they're at a disadvantage. So why bother? Hmm. So they enter a field with, with deer and, and clearly there's a disadvantage there. The deer know they're there. There's no opportunity for chase. There's too much opportunity for escape. So I'll just move along with my business and go elsewhere. You mentioned bobcats there. Do you see any kind of, I know the study wasn't about bobcats, but do you see any kind of similar correlations between 
a, a coyote and a bobcat as far as, you know, the resident versus transient or some of the, the actual habits and what their diet, you know, is? Well, we don't see, you know, cats don't have a resident transient type system like coyotes. They have a land tenure system. And what that means is there's a certain number of home ranges on the landscape. And as cats die, they fill in those vacancies. And in other words, there's only a certain number of puzzle pieces that will fit and therefore cats kind of backfill like that they they wait for a territory to open but cats only have uh, females only reproduce every other year so you tend to see cat populations grow much slower than coyote populations and they're also solitary and they're territorial so you you know you have one female that uses a home range and she doesn't allow other females to use that range. And you see the same thing with males. So numerically on a given, let's just say a you know, hundred square miles, numerically there, there are fewer cats than there are coyotes. Hmm. Which your pictures you would bear that yeah, out. I was yeah. going to say, you see that in your, your trail camera yeah. pictures. Mm -hmm. And I know here in Missouri, we are, I think our biologists are estimating we have a black bear population of uh, up around 500 and we have, mountain lions that are beginning to set up resident ranges here in the state. Any idea what that's going to do? I mean, these are competing predators now on the landscape that are bigger than coyotes. Any idea what that's going to do to po uh, coyote population dynamics? I don't think it will have any measurable effect on coyotes per se. I mean, we, we did some work in North Louisiana on a population of, of deer uh, on the Tensaw National Wildlife Refuge that, where they're basically you have bobcats, coyotes, and black bears. In fact, numerically, a lot of black bears. And what we found there was instead of bobcats and coyotes being the only two predators of deer, they partitioned predation with black bears. In fact, in that population, black bears were, were the most important predator on fawns. Mm. They, they, they preyed on more fawns than coyotes or bobcats did. Mm. Um, but from a competition standpoint, I don't think black bears are that important to coyotes. Co again, coyotes can eat so many different types of prey, and they're so plastic, if you will, in how they behave. Yeah. I don't I don't think bears are an issue for them. Mm. Unfortunately, if you're... <laughs> I could You're, talk to Mike for days. Yeah, th there was another data point that he had in his article where it said, uh, on average, a pack will consume 600 pounds of deer meat on average. That's correct, right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, great. that's a lot of deer meat. <laughs> yeah. It is. Well, it just goes to show you if, if we don't take care of them, Mother Nature will. You know, that's a, mm -hmm. there's a balancing act out there with everything. Well, there in January when yeah. we shot that buck, maybe 30 minutes went by, 45 before we started tracking and went, you know, he was, we felt like a dead deer running. And we went over there and he had already, coyotes had already gotten on him and, and started tooting on on his back end. It's like, you know, <laughs> they're everywhere. They're good at living. They are, man. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and they're smart. I mean, they, I, I, I've heard, I've heard of them listening for, listening for the gunshot and then taking that opportunity to go and scavenge a, a deer. I mean, they learn stuff like that. You would think they'd have to be pretty old to have conditioned that to that, yeah. I would think. But you, I'm sure yeah, one thing about the one thing about the consumption that you just referenced, what we saw is that certain packs ate proportionally a lot more poundage of, of venison than other packs. So some some of these groups, these residents really didn't consume that much deer. But boy, there were some groups that ate a lot of deer. And if you you kind of factored that out across, well, how many bucks or does could that be in a year? You know, some of these groups of coyotes were literally only consuming one deer, one adult, and the others were consuming eight, 10 or more adults in a year, which just goes to show you how complicated kind of this question is because you literally could have, you know, landowners in County A 
that are seeing very little predation issues from coyotes. And then in County B, there's kind of a grade, you know, a gradation. And by the time you get to County C, those deer are getting, you know, a lot of pressure from coyotes. So there, there's a lot of variability across the landscape. But I, I've seen the same observation you just referenced as far as gunshots going off, coyotes showing up at the kills before folks can get out of the stand. My, my son shot a, a doe in Louisiana this year with his bow, um, hit her just a, a, a touch back, had it on video, um, texted me and said, hey, uh, I hit her just a little, a little back. I definitely got, you know, good exit wound, lung blood. I'm going to give her just a few minutes. So he sat there for 45 minutes. By the time he calmed down, the coyotes had already gotten to him. You know, and then we're talking, you know, less than an hour and there was no gunshot. So in that situation, you just, you had animals that, that crossed that track within an hour of him you know, releasing that arrow and they, they found that animal quickly and had already consumed one of the, the hindquarters before he ever got to it. Yeah. Your average was 600 pounds, but on the high end, it said a thousand pounds, right? Yeah. 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 So <laughs> that's amazing. I wonder what they think in that situation. You know, if they're used to running and going to work to get a deer down, that's all of a sudden good. they come across one that's freshly dead. They got to be like, wow. Happy <laughs> birthday. To me. Merry Christmas. <laughs> You know, yeah, it's just like one of us when we get a when we get a gift card from Bass Pro or Cabela's. Yeah, exactly. Like, hey, right. something <laughs> fell in my lap. Yeah, the, the world that my dad grew up in was uh, was there were bounties on on coyotes. Do, do those systems work, Mike? Or are they ineffective? By and large, they're ineffective. You, what research has shown with coyotes is that to have any measurable effect on their populations, you have to remove on order of around 75% per year mm. for multiple years to have any measurable effect on the population size. Um, they coyotes, when they're persecuted, they are capable of increasing their litter sizes. Their pup survival Jeez. can be really high. Chad wrote about that. So, yeah, so they respond to changes in density by just making more coyotes. So, that's shown. <laughs> you would have to have a bounty system that is is remarkably wide scale and efficient to have any any impact. You know, this, the saying goes, if there's a nuclear attack, you'll have cockroaches and coyotes left. And yeah. that's it. Well, yeah. he's explaining. They're pretty yeah. incredible. Unreal. Yeah. Fascinating. I wonder if wolves are similar to this. Um, wolves have a, a different social system, as as I'm kind of briefly mentioned. They you know, what you see with wolves is you have you have a pack that has a defined social structure and they maintain a territory that's very rigid. And what coyotes do is one, there's just a monogamous breeding pair. There's just, you know, a male and female. And then each year those pups that are surviving disperse and move away and then they breed again. So what you end up seeing with coyotes is unlike a wolf that uses a, a large territory in a group, what you see with coyotes is their ranges, if you know like what a pinwheel is, when you spin a pinwheel and it, it kind of wobbles back and forth from side to side as, as it's spinning, that's what coyotes do in their territories. So they use this little pocket for a few weeks and then they move over a little way and they'll, they'll use a different area for a day or two days or three or four days. And basically what you see is this, this, this pinwheel, this wobble wheel, if you will. So the, why that's important is unlike a wolf that uses a large territory and they hunt extensively within that territory, coyotes kind of pick and choose and, and go where, um, prey are abundant. And the other thing with coyotes is if you look at their body sizes, they're so much smaller than a wolf. They don't have to consume as much prey. So they can use much, much smaller home ranges than a wolf and still make a living. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. It, it, it's fascinating. And I think it brings up the point that you can, you can appreciate an animal for what it is. You don't have to necessarily hate it. I mean, coyotes aren't, 
aren't extremely helpful for us as whitetail hunters, but I don't think we have to go to the other end of the spectrum and hate the animal. They're part of the ecosystem. You know, they, are. they, mm-hmm. they have a purpose. <laughs> we may not agree with it because we're whitetail managers, but they have a purpose. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. That's right. Well, okay. let's, well, let's, the way I look at it from that, that perspective, you know, I'm, I'm a passionate deer hunter and I would, people that live in my house, say fanatical would be more appropriate. Um, and I've kind of thought about this as a, as a hunter and a scientist. And it just, the take home to me is we're dealing with this animal in perpetuity. I mean, coyotes are here. They're not going anywhere. We're going to have to adjust how we behave as hunters and managers. And we're going to have to adjust our, in some situations, the number of animals that we take from the environment, we're going to have to be proactive and we're going to have to think a little outside of the box because this animal is going to be influencing our deer herds by and large from here on. So it's really up to us to to change our mindsets a little bit and try to figure out ways to um, to manage our deer herds in the presence of this species because they're here. Before we jump into the question of the day, I have kind of a it's it's still on topic, but it's outside of the realm of of whitetail management and and how predators uh, interact with that. But I live in the suburbs of St. Louis, and um, you know one of the things every night basically we hear you know coyotes start howling every single night around us and you know people have small pets and a lot of non-hunters in our neighborhood have really no idea literally one lady on our facebook page said i saw a wolf in the neighborhood (laughs) i was like i think that's a coyote (laughs) you know so but in your study did, did did any of these coyotes end up near urban areas or suburbs or how is the interaction as far as packs go? Or is it, I would assume it's a real transient um, predator in that, in that relationship. But do, do you have any kind of science or data behind that? Yeah, definitely. Um, many of our coyotes ended up in suburban type situations. They would use the peripheries of subdivisions we had, we had coyotes in North Carolina that that dispersed and ended up living in in suburban type areas. So this animal, as we all know, can do that. What you tend to see is that there tends to be more transient type behavior associated with with suburban areas because residents, by and large, don't want to interact with with humans because it's risky. So uh, that being said, there's been some really cool research in Chicago. Um, a buddy of, of mine, a colleague has been doing that work for years where they, where they've looked at coyote behavior in suburban and urban Chicago. And they, I mean, you see residents maintaining territories in the city. Wow. They just figured out a way to navigate around humans and, if you think about it, once you get in the city, per se, your risk of dying from a trap or a gunshot is zero. Yeah, so if, if you can get, you know, if you can get away from from roads and not get run over by a car, by and large, you're pretty safe. What are you they know, praying? If you, if you really on, think about it. What are they preying on predominantly in those in those suburban areas? They all sorts of rodents. Um, of course, rabbits, cats, is which is a, obviously a problem for homeowners. Um, fruits, pet food. You you, uh-huh. you tend to see that that coyotes in urban areas, as you would expect, eat more human food. Eat more kind of, uh, kind of try to avoid the, the the jargon like anthropogenic, but basically just um, they eat things that we produce whether it's refuse, garbage. Um, I, I watched a coyote on the side of the interstate one time eat a, a, a bag of McDonald's fries that somebody had, had dropped out. And I mean, when he, when he pulled his head up out of the bag, he literally was munching on French fries. So <laughs> they make it work. Salty. They can, you know, they're, they're so adaptable. Yeah, that's, that's phenomenal. It's, Fascinating. It is. We, we ran a picture on our social last year that was sent to me by a friend who has a, a suburban home here in St. Louis. And she had a coyote on her back 
patio eating the food out of her dog's bowl. It's there. It's there. <laughs> yeah, why not? It's protein. Yeah. Have at it. Phenomenal. Interesting. So amazing. You want to go to the wildlife word of the day? We want to go sure. to the question of the day or the wildlife oh, word question of the day? day. We yeah. got so many ways we got we so can many go. great things on this podcast. Let's <laughs> All right. We'll do the question of the day. So the question of the day is brought to you by Bass Pro Shops in Cabela's. Your adventure starts. Hi, this is Zach from Michigan. I had a question regarding uh, shooting does with fawns. I've heard from some that you should never shoot a doe with a fawn because a fawn will eventually die. I've heard that sometimes a fawn will just find a new mom or you should wait a fixed amount of time from generally when the fawns drop in the spring in order to shoot a doe with fawns. Um, just looking for your guys' input. Any help would be appreciated. Thanks. Thank you, Zach from Michigan. Mike, could you hear that question all right? I could. Yep. Okay, good. So, so what are your thoughts here? Well, first of all, the notion that you shouldn't shoot a, a, a doe that has a fawn in most populations is is a bit nonsensical um you know I, I could see in situations where you have really low deer density i'm trying to get my wife out of the back of the frame here <laughs> um if you have really low deer density you may you may consider laying off of those that have surviving fawns maybe you had a really bad summer um and your fawn production is really low, then you may consider laying off of does with fawns. But by and large, um, there's really no reason not to harvest a doe that has a fawn. If your objective is to reduce deer density and remove does from the landscape, removing one with a fawn in the fall is really no different than removing one without a fawn. The notion that they would just accept another mother is is not true. But what you do see with uh, matriarchal groups of does where you have an, an older doe and then other does that she fawned in her life that have also produced fawns, and we've all seen this. These are these large groups of does. You know, there may be three or four does and, and five or six fawns that are hanging out in the food plot. In those situations, removing one of those those does that has a fawn is really not problematic at all because that matriarchal group is going to remain together. So they're, they're still going to socially hang around with each other. As long as the fawns are not nursing and generally, you know, at that point, just assume, well, all spots are gone, they're, they're actually... Um, then as far as I'm concerned, and all the science says at that point, that that doe can be harvested without any effect on that fawn. If you back that up, when you say you're at the front end of the season here in the Midwest, mid-September, early October, and you're simply seeing a doe with two fawns or a doe with a fawn, uh, how do you feel about it then as opposed to later in, in the year? <sighs> Speaking personally, if it's super early in the fall and you're in situations where you still have fawns that are potentially nursing, then I, I tend to personally hold off on, on shooting does with fawns early in the in the fall. Most of my hunting, admittedly, is in the far deep south where we still have fawns with spots when when archer season opens. And obviously, uh, I would I would not condone or encourage folks to shoot does that have spotted fawns with them. So we tend not to see much doe harvest early in our our archery seasons for that reason. At least on properties that, that I've worked on, because hunters are are hesitant as they should be to to kill a a doe that has fawns at at heel. As the fall progresses, you know those does. And what you what you see, and you, you guys know this, you know those does are going to expel those button bucks away from them, and the doe fawn that's with her will will remain with her, but she's going to isolate those buck fawns and and force them to move away from her. So you know at that point in the fall, those social groups are already set up 
there's no reason not to shoot that doe with that fawn again if your objective is to lower deer density and remove does excellent answer thank you yeah yeah all right how about the wildlife word let's do it let's do it okay uh this week's wildlife word is counter shading we actually have a guest on that may know it for once (laughs) what the (laughs) so mike have you ever heard of that before I have not. (laughs) Tim did it again. He stumps us us every counter shading is the method of counter counter shading. You could probably break the words apart and 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 figure it out that way. But it's a method of camouflage in which an animal's coloration is darker on the upper side and lighter on the underside of the body. This is found in many mammals, fish, reptiles, and birds. It makes an animal seem less solid and and aids in avoiding predation. Makes complete sense. I should have known that. And if my if my PhD advisor Bruce Leopold, who's retired from Mississippi State, if he if he (laughs) listens to this, which I doubt he will, but if he listens to this and realizes I didn't know that, he would be curious. Shaking, (laughs) shaking his head. (laughs) This is undergrad material, Mike. You're safe. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it was so great having you on, Mike. I mean, we we should probably set up some additional podcasts in the future. I'm telling you, it's fun to talk to someone who's devoted their life to something, and you can just tell they know what they're talking about. um, that that's what we got. Yeah, we Great really resource. appreciate your time, Mike, and we hope that we can have you back at some point to talk turkeys, perhaps. Absolutely, guys. It was great to join you, and I'm 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 welcome to participate anytime. All right, awesome. thank you. We appreciate thank you very much, Mike. Well, and thanks everyone who's, who's been listening, and uh, hopefully you're finding ways to stay engaged and interested while you're at home. Hold up. That's right. We're going to be launching a podcast. I mean, we launch a podcast, a new one every week. Anyways, so every Wednesday, I believe it hits the YouTube and and the audio version comes out. And then Saturdays is when the video version hits the DeerCast feed. Very nice. So, yeah, stay tuned with us. We're going to keep pumping out good content and hopefully keep you guys occupied and as in this case, informed. So absolutely. (laughs) Sometimes that (laughs) That was great. I really enjoyed (laughs) that. Mike's a wealth of knowledge. All right. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Till next time. Peace out.